just a disclaimer uh, for anybody listening, especially Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, listeners. We will be talking about uh, a period of time in, a, in Australian history that was very violent and vicious uh, towards Aboriginal people, and we may be mentioning names of Aboriginal uh, people who are now deceased. Welcome to Frontier War Stories. Before I go on any further, I would like to pay my respects to the country on which I am making this podcast and where my guests are from, and also the listeners and where you are listening uh, to this around the continent. I also like to pay my respects to Aboriginal people who fought in the frontier wars, which began as early as 1788 and lasted till the 1930s. That's roughly 140 years that Aboriginal people continued to fight. I would like to pay my respects to all the mob around this continent. Each week, I speak with different Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about research, books, oral histories, which document the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. These times are the frontier wars, and these are our war stories. In episode 16, I speak with Dr. Chris Owen, who is a historian and honorary research fellow in the School of History at the University of Western Australia. Uh, Dr. Chris is also the author of Every Mother's Son is Guilty. Police in the Kimberley, Frontier of Western Australia, 1882 to 1905. Uh, just recently, I'd like to mention he wrote uh, an amazing article uh, in The Guardian titled How Western Australia's Unofficial Use of Neck Chains on Indigenous Peoples Lasted 80 Years. Uh, thanks, Chris, uh, for joining me on Frontier Wars and um, having a chat with us. Oh, no worries, mate. Pleasure. I guess first, Chris, uh, what I want to uh, just let the listeners know is we'll sort of break this conversation up into two parts. The first part, I'd love to have a chat with you <clears throat> about sort of this recent article uh, you, uh, you just put out in regards to the use of neck chains on First Nations people. Uh, you also sent me an email uh, not too long ago today. you done um, some massacre mapping, uh, the same uh, for Western Australia, like um, Professor Lyndall Ryan did uh, on the on the on the on the East Coast, I would also love to yarn about uh, Native uh, Police. My last episode, actually, I chatted with um, Lindley Wallace, and we had a chat about Queensland's uh, Native Mounted Police. And then the last part, we would love to finish off uh, having a chat about Gendamara. From my understanding, the Kimberleys is a is a huge, large area. Um, yeah. How big is the Kimberleys and, and, and how significant was this area in regards to policing it? Oh, well, you know, it's the size of England, you know, and it was the, the Kimberley district was one of the, it was actually the last frontier in Australia to colonise. So that's why you're seeing it relatively late in, in the colonisation period, like 1882. Um, it was explored by, you know, notable um, Western Australian people, Alexander Forrest and John Forrest, who was later to become Premier of the state. Uh, so it was explored and opened up the pastoralism um, in the 1880s. So these enormous tracts of land, you know, millions of acres were opened up. Uh, cattle and sheep were introduced, um, you know, 3,000 kilometres away from the city of Perth where it was administered. So, um, And it's in a notoriously harsh environment. So, you know, setting up the, um, the pastoral industry was a, you know, it was a debacle because they had to ship um, cattle up on the boats. And also they had no idea of 
the complexity or the size of the Aboriginal population there when it was um, uh, Kimberley's second in population to, to Queensland. So you had something between 10,000 and 30,000 Aboriginal people and they were very, um, very militant in uh, resistance. Um, so you can sort of see this sort of, the north of Australia, which they were very militant, uh, much more militant, I think, than down south, I think. Um, so they established the parcel industry and pretty soon after they discovered that Aboriginal people didn't want cattle and sheep on their on the country. Um, so the inevitable conflict started happening. Um, and and the key point that I found out was that um, the pastoralists would say the Aboriginal people were steering all my cattle, but it was actually um, um, the Aboriginal people being on the country near the cattle stopped the production of cattle. So um, And the, the stress that it caused the cattle made them lose condition and thus the profit. So you ended up, um, you know, started off gently in the 1880s, but by the 1890s, as cattle numbers increased into hundreds of thousands, um, it basically became a, you know, contest between who's going to have the country, the cattle or the Aboriginal people, and it wasn't going to be Aboriginal people. And that's when you see, um, you know, a handful of police sent up in the 1880s. Um, so I think in 1888, there was 27 police for the, you know, millions and millions of acres. So it was ridiculous. Um, but in the 18, 1880s and into the 1890s, it basically became a war with police becoming more militant and, uh, you know, going on the mountain patrols. And you know, there you see the notorious photos of the chains of Aboriginal people pulled off their country. And that'll be the um, the, the image on the front of uh, your book? Yeah, that's the front of the cover on the book there, Mirawong Gadjurong Men uh, and Boys, these are in prison boys as well. They're up the back if you look closely. Uh, so that's Wyndham, which was where uh, cattle were exported um, out to Western, uh, down in Perth and later into Indonesia. Uh, so you basically had this, you know, this largely informal system where Aboriginal people were uh, caught on their country, neck chain, uh, pulled off their country, walked sometimes 400 k's, uh, imprisoned, uh, either in Wyndham, Halls Creek, Broom later, and then uh, some sent down to Rottnest Prison, watch him up, uh, just to get them off the country. So it was, you know, it wasn't particularly legal, but that's just what they did, uh, for, you know, from the 1880s to the 1940s. And you just mentioned as well, you know, the, um, the chaining of, of young boys. I know uh, you mentioned that in your article, and I know we chatted last week, I believe, and you mentioned yeah. uh, that as well. Uh, could you sort of yeah. just detail a bit more about the chaining of, of young kids um, on the frontier in um, in the Kimberleys? Yeah, sure. Um, I just discovered it through the research. I thought it used to be just the senior men that would neck chain, but they neck chain basically everyone, even women who were often um, ankle chained, um, with no you know, criminal charge against them at all. Um, but it, there was a very famous Royal Commission, it's online, you can actually, um, I'll send you the link to your listeners, uh, where Walter Roth did a Royal Commission in 1905 and found that they were neck chaining 10 and 11 year old boys um, and imprisoning them for you know two months for killing a goat or allegedly killing a goat. And more recently, um, I think it's 1953. This is this is how ingrained the whole neck chain system was. They had a school. There's a, a station called Mullah Bullet that the government set up to um, as a you know it was a very sensible way 
to uh, put a school there for kids, Aboriginal kids, uh, make an Aboriginal parcel station. It was a very, very good endeavour, I think. But in 1953, the school there, there was evidence that um, the schoolmaster was net chaining six-year-old boys and nine-year-old boys uh, for, for playing around too much. That's um, right. I, so, I, 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 sorry. Yeah. No, you go. Um, it's, yeah, and it's just, you see how ingrained the whole punishment system um, so what they're basically saying is you you, must, you mess around like your fathers and your grandfathers, you're going to end up on the chain as well. And that's that, that's what I read in that latest article that you written that, uh, that you put in uh, the Guardian as well. So if anybody is listening, uh, yeah. check that article out. How Western Australia's unofficial use of neck chains on Indigenous peoples lasted eighty years. Um, and what do you mean by lasted eighty years? Was that you know uh, eighty years after they sort of outlawed the use of chains? Or no, no. I mean, in the Kimberley, they you know they just the thing is that they weren't even police issue. Like the police used to buy them themselves, which is you know, shows how crazy the old system was. Um, so in the 1880s, they used them. And then in 1905, in the Rothschild Commission, you know, there was international and national outrage at this practice of neck chaining boys and, you know, men and, cause, um, and neck, keeping the neck chains on in prison, which is illegal. Um, one senior government guy, my favourite spirit said, Brett, just said, it's an informal practice of the last 30 years. That's in 1905. Um, so you see, the um, Roth is just outraged, and he's going, you know, you need to stop neck chaining people. It's not humane. It's disgrace. It's a disgrace to Western Australia. So the Western Australian government banned it um, in 1905, uh, and when the furor over the Roth Royal Commission died down, they just reinstated them in 1906, and you see them being used. The latest I've seen is 1958, where they're still using neck chains. The the title sort of image in that latest article of yours, um, where uh, the 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 men are sort of standing under a tree or chained up. Even in that photo, like some of the people look very young uh, as yeah. well. Uh, yeah, like they, they look like you know they're either in their early teens or or, or even younger. Um, yeah. How sort of you know you you, you sort of alluded before. Um, you know, uh, once sort of the, the cattle and sheep sort of started to, to 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 blow up more in in the Kimberleys region, it started heating up a bit more as well. Um, <clears throat> you know, and well, well, like you mentioned, sort of it, it was really subtle uh, in the beginning from Aboriginal people. You know, just and like it, I guess it always is, always has been in in in, in different parts of the country. Uh, Aboriginal people just sort of you know. Um, uh, giving sort of as much sort of room to sort of other people to sort of use land. Uh, then once yeah. it got a bit, you know, too too much, that's when they sort of started reacting. Uh, and then yeah. obviously when, you know, the the mistreatment towards Aboriginal people started occurring, we, you know, you see in different parts of the country Aboriginal um, payback or sort of resistance starts to sort of really, really amp up. Um, in yeah. this... You know, from your knowledge and sort of in this Kimberley area, when does it really start to sort of really uh, come to head? Uh, I think you nailed it because you're right. Um, in the early colonisation period, you're not seeing a lot of conflict. I mean, you can see this Australia-wide. I mean, in the Kimberley, you see, you know, Aboriginal people just sort of went, you know, oh, you know, um, they thought, you know, welcome. We're not, you know, they weren't violent, they weren't aggressive, they weren't offering huge resistance. 
and you see, which is was one of the most eye-opening things. It's, it's really cautious accommodation for years and years, and um, uh, you're not seeing much conflict at all until you know the inevitable. And this is the story of Australia that um, you know as cattle numbers increased and Aboriginal waterholes got destroyed by cattle and Aboriginal food got destroyed. All the kangaroos were shot by the you know the white colonists. Uh, so the Aboriginal food source just got destroyed in a matter of like 10 years in the Kimberley I'm, I'm talking about. So that's when, you know, the cattle killing started. And they did kill cattle. I'm not denying that, but they didn't kill them with the numbers that people are talking about. Um, so so you're seeing also these sort of desperate uh, pastoral industry, you know, who invested a lot of money. They come from, a lot of them come from Queensland, particularly for the East Kimberley. You know, a lot of money and a lot of effort to establish the cattle industry, and that you know, you know, one one cat, piece of uh, cattle was worth a lot of money for for the white settlers. And if if one of them was killed, especially breeding stock, you know, the outrage that you can see it in the historical record was you know palpable. So you'll see you'll see stuff like um, the pastor saying, you know, to one of their stockmen, you know, go and tell those blacks down the back of my run. Uh, not to touch my cattle, and you know that might be a month or so. And then another month, something else happens, and then he will say, "Go and tell those blacks down the back of my run, um, you know, don't touch my cattle, or you're going to go to jail." So another month, and more cattle going missing. And then the third time, he's going, um, "Go down the back of the run, and, run and fix up those blacks," which was you know code for killing them, which was right right through the Kimberley, especially the East Kimberley, and that's where you see the establishment of. Um, you know, the, the, the mass murders and dispersals and the subsequent burning of the bodies just roll off through the Kimberley. Mm. Well, that's what I want to get to as well um, uh, through email just uh, before the interview that uh, you took part in in the massacre mapping uh, in Western Australia. Uh, for anybody listening, uh, in my earlier sort of interviews, I have I chatted with Professor Lyndall Ryan, who's doing an amazing work uh, in the space of undercovering, uh, uncovering, sorry, um, forgotten massacres, uh, marking well-known massacres in different parts of the country. Um, and yeah, I, I never realised that uh, you were doing some of that work. And how did it become aware that what you were doing would add to sort of what uh, Lyndall uh, was doing with the massacre mapping? Oh, well, Lyndall and Newcastle Uni team, um, they only had funding for the eastern part of Australia. And there was sort of this glaring gap in Western Australia so where you got in contact through, you know, academic circles and she asked me to do the Western Australian side. So I've done the first stage of that and, you know, as you can see on the massacre map, you can Google the Newcastle massacre map, most of them, the big ones are in the Kimberley. Um, so I've looked at this stuff for, you know, years and years. And the thing is, um, Aboriginal oral history, you just go and look at them Every single, there's a consistent theme through all those early um, Aboriginal oral histories. Uh, consistent theme of um, settlers coming in, colonists coming in, uh, shooting people, including, you know, women, children and babies, um, uh, and burning the bodies to hide evidence. Because by the 1900s, um, you know, police were actively investigating these claims and if um, the pastors just learned if they could incinerate and destroy every piece of evidence, there was no evidence and there was no case. Um, so I've just been looking at it for years and years and their police reports are really good. Um, 
and I just I just want to say a lot of the police are really good up there. They were actively investigate cases, um, but the pastoralist community was such a hostile body of people to any police investigation into um, you know brutality or murder of Aboriginal people that the, the police had a terrible time trying to get any sort of prosecution happening. Um, so yeah, there was some really good police up there. It just made their life miserable work by trying to enforce the law. Mm. Um, which sort of brings me to my next part as well. Um, and, and sort of just talking about uh, the policing uh, area side of it as well, which we'll go back into the massacres. Um, obviously, as a result of sort of the resistance to um, yeah, more cattle and sheep coming on the country, uh, more partial sort of, you know, um, locking up land, uh, especially near rivers, like you mentioned, um, how big was sort of the incarceration, or if you want to call it incarceration, but, you know, the locking up of Aboriginal people? I remember chatting with um, with Kristen Harmon uh, from Tasmania and, 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 you know, she mentioned to me sort of this whole, um, how Aboriginal people were a part of sort of the, the convict system, as she called it, um, you know, in, in, in many sort of prisons, penal colonies set up um, uh, and convict sort of prisons set up on the East Coast, um, you know, Aboriginal people, uh, uh, as, as a result of being part of the Frontier Wars conflict, uh, they were locked up, uh, sent to these islands uh, for for maybe a number of years uh, and maybe let go or, or sort of they stayed, you know, the rest of their life there as well. Uh, yeah. In Western Australia, um you know, because I know as early as sort of 1804, I believe, uh, when, from chatting with uh, Kristen, is that's how, how early Aboriginal people were being locked up uh, on the yep. eastern states. Uh, in Western Australia, what's the the, the, uh, the timeline with sort of the locking up of Aboriginal people? I know uh, Rottnest played a massive part in that as well. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Western Australia was colonised again late, uh, 18, 1826 in Albany, and then settled in 1829, uh, so it started soon after that. Um, Aboriginal people were just imprisoned. Um, Rottnest was established as a prison in 1838, so it wasn't that long before, um, you know, there was all these ideas, and it's the same in Tasmania, um, you know, the idea that you just gather up every Aboriginal person in Western Australia and stick them on an island, um, you know, ludicrous in hindsight, but that's what people thought. And it wasn't long before they just started using Rottnest as, as the prison. Um, so you're talking, you know, 1838 to, you know, well, well you can see the threads through it today where you're still using the criminal justice system um, for Aboriginal people uh, in the absence of any sort of, you know, sensible social policy. Um, and everyone knows, you know, even today that, you know, imprisoning people doesn't work, but it's, it still seems to happen with, you know, just regularity. Could you tell us how uh, Gender Mara sort of came into uh, being a, this uh, frontier uh, uh, figure? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, Gender Mara is one of the pivotal resistance figures in, in Australia, isn't it? And he, the story is very well known. Um, he was the critical thing. He was, he was born during the colonisation period in the 1870s, 1880s. So he's a young boy. He grew up on the pastoral station. Um, he was a Bunaba man, like, who lived, you know, in the ranges of the Kimberley, the Napier and um, Windjana Gorge sort of area. 
um, who worked on the pastoral station, and then he became um, one of one of the um, what they called native assistants, which is we haven't talked about that yet, but they're sort of the equivalent of um, the native police of Queensland. So he became a um, a native assistant, and um, he worked for a police officer called Richardson. And um, one day, uh, so he'd go around. They go around. The police would have two, three native assistants who were just, you know, very well versed in horse horsemanship and shooting, very good shots. Um, and they go around arresting people and putting them on the chain. And one day, Jandamara uh, shot Richardson dead. Um, and this started the great, you know, the great Jandamara story where he kept the white colonists at bay for, you know, four years um, by hiding out in the ranges of the Kimberley. And he's, um, he, so he kept them at bay for four years. He was quite a remarkable guy. There's a very well-documented story, and it's completely true, where he shot um, this colonist Joe Bly's gun out of his hand, <laughs> sort of like a magician. Um, so he kept them... He shot quite a few white blokes and uh, enraged the police force because they couldn't catch him and enraged the pastoralist community. Uh, until he finally shot um, in 1898 and killed. But his, his stories, you know, it's just gone through Aboriginal oral history forever and it's still a remarkable story. I was talking to um, uh, Joe, uh, Joseph Tos- uh, Toscano about uh, Mulbahina and, and uh, Tinaminaway, uh, the two Palawa uh, freedom fighters who were hung uh, in Melbourne. And we sort yep. of got onto this chat about um, the, the the resistance fighters of Aboriginal people are not necessarily remembered. You know, um, yeah. one of the, I guess one of the most sort of most notable figures from sort of this frontier time would be somebody like uh, Ned Kelly. Put these two stories up against each other and sort of look at them. You know, are they you know uh, two different stories or are they the same story? Or and also is one as important as the other? You know, should we be you know sharing these stories of sort of Chandamara and and these other sort of First Nations fighters? Oh yeah, I mean most definitely. The thing with Chandamara was you know at the time his behaviour was seen as um, outlawry. You know, you're outlawry outside of the law. You know, an outrageous affront, you know, British Australian justice. So he's just seen as a criminal. Um, but lately, you know, in the last, you know, since since the 1970s, since sort of revision about, um, you know, Aboriginal actions, now you can see Jander Murrow is, is a resistance fighter fighting for his country. Um, and you'll see, like, there's a lot of focus on Jander Murrow, but there's probably a hundred other um, Aboriginal figures in the Kimberley who are doing exactly the same thing. Um, and they were probably just killed or imprisoned. Um, so you're saying we, we sort of need to acknowledge these as, as national stories as well, in the same way Ed Kelly is sort of venerated uh, for good or bad. And, and like you just mentioned, you know, there's hundreds of other sort of individuals or you know, or sort of these uh, group events that sort of took place where uh, a group of sort of Aboriginal people took up arms or, or took up resistance in different parts of the country. And, you know, we, we we tend not to sort of hear about that as well. Um, and one thing you just mentioned as well is sort of, it was like an off-site, uh, I guess the Western Australian version of a of a native police uh, you were mentioning that you wanted to sort of touch on? Yeah, sure. That's one of the most fascinatingly strange um, setups you can see. Um, I didn't even know they existed when I started research, but every policeman in the Kimberley and the Pilbara particularly um, had what was called a native assistant, which was an Aboriginal um, tracker or um, armed tracker 
who um, basically worked for them, but they weren't um, members of the police force. So it's this very strange setup where they used to get paid two shillings. The police would be paid two shillings, which is not much, just for their upkeep, so they could get food and clothes. Um, and these were um, young, generally young Aboriginal men, not from the country. A lot of them were brought over from Queensland. Or if you agreed to work for the police, you'd get out of jail for free. Um, and they were used as trackers, um, you know, for, you know, in the Kimberley 1880s to 1940s, and then then the sort of their name sort of changed. Um, they used to be fully armed, um, like the Queensland Native Police. Um, even though it was illegal, that was illegal because Aboriginal people weren't allowed to have firearms, but that, that was just ignored. So you'll see this whole trend of laws that were just ignored um, to suit the interests of the police and the pastoral industry. Um, so there was some very famous native assistants, um, and they were often targeted by um, the Aboriginal people on the country because they knew police, white police couldn't track anyone without the native assistants. Um, so, yeah, it's a very strange mm. setup, and it's completely illegal. And it's well documented that uh, Gendamara uh, was tracked, um, and I think he was killed by another Aboriginal person? Yeah, Mingo Mick. He was a pilgrim man. And he was what sort of, was he one of those sort of assistants, or was he just sort of brought yeah. in to sort of track down? Yeah, he was one of the native assistants. Um the thing is, you know, in the, the colonisation period, these Aboriginal men, that they either had a choice to go to jail or become a native assistant. So, um, you know, the, the choice was bleak, whatever they had to do. Um, and, you know, the more uh, brutal they were, they were often highly regarded for skills. And the thing, you know, this is, you know, it's a terrible thing, but it, it suited the government 100% because they weren't accountable to the police and they weren't uh, required to take records like the police were. They could, they could basically do what they liked and, um, you know, everyone was happy and there was no record of anything. By contrast, the white police had to document everything they did. Is there sort of any, any other things that you've, uh, over your years of sort of studying uh, the frontier in Western Australia that sort of, you know, caught your eye or sort of, you know, uh, pricked your interest? Oh, um, just the links between government, colonists, communities, uh, pastoral industry. Anytime... Um, again, I'd say that the police, there was some really great police. They went up there, they tried to enforce the law, you know, um, blackbirding, you'd know about that in Queensland where mm-hmm. they supposed to be the clearest example of slavery in Australia. They used to do that on the purling boats and um, around Broome and Roebuck Bay right up in the Kimberley. Aboriginal people were kidnapped on country, net chain and taken to the purling boats and forced to die for pearl and often killed um, if they didn't get enough pearl, not literally killed. Um, or forced to stay up the mast all night if they didn't get enough pearls. So you see police up there, you know, diligent police trying, getting all this evidence, you know, this is, this is illegal, this is slavery, uh, reporting it to police, try, um, then arresting the people, because they all knew who did it. There's a bloke called Thomas Nowton, who was one of the worst ones up there, who was a black bird, reporting it to the uh, police, of getting an arrest, uh, taking it to court. And then you'll find that the, the magistrate, um, was the very person who owned the purling boat up there. There's one case, Rob, Robert Stoll, um, he owned the purling boat, so he just dismissed the charges. And then you see, you know, um, police, direct police evidence, just going, I beg you to take this case to Perth. There's no chance of getting justice up here. And the end result was that police just ended up, you know, ignoring all these accusations because they knew they couldn't do anything about it anyway. So 
basically, all, if you reported white people for abuse towards Aboriginal people, all it did was make your life hell. Because um, you know, there's such a small colonist community up there, you just be you just be blackballed, was what they call it. That means you wouldn't get any food, or you couldn't go to the pub, or you couldn't share any social things with uh, the other white people because you're um, dobbing them in. Do you know much about Aboriginal people when they when they come in contact with the justice law, why the, their cases weren't heard? Like, obviously, you just mentioned one of the judges owned a pearling boat, but um, is it because under their under sort of the, the judge's eyes they weren't seen as British or Christian or, you know, was it just sort of because it was the frontier you know, we, you know, Australia needed as much land as possible. So, you know, let's not try and give as much justice to Aboriginal people. Like, do you know why there wasn't much justice for Aboriginal people on the frontier? Oh, it's you know that the Aboriginal people, um, you know, in the early days of the Swan River colony, it's just similar to all colonies. They were proclaimed British citizens. So, you, in, in theory, you had Aboriginal people had the same rights as white people, but it was, you know, ultimately a farce because, you know, they simply didn't have the same rights. And um, you see, you know, there's, there's this sort of early accommodation and then the conflict starts and then Aboriginal start, people start killing white people and white people start killing Aboriginal people. But there was no sort of equity of justice at all. I mean, if a white person killed a Aboriginal person, they'd generally uh, just say it was self-defence and the whole case would be dismissed. But if it was the other way around, uh, the Aboriginal person would be, you know, incarcerated at best and all hanged at worst. Um, so you'll see all, all through Australia, this, this this historian Lisa Ford called it uh, the narrative of peril defence. Or you you went to court for killing Aboriginal people, and all you had to say was, uh, and colonists quickly learned to do this to say, well, look, he was threatening me and my family and my colonist community, and the judge would, you know, would. You know, also white colonists would say, "Well, this is you know part of the threat to our the colonisation process." So um, they were the charge against the white settler was dismissed um, outright, usually. Um, and you'll see, you know, contrary to what a lot of people think, that the punitive expeditions, the big massacres, there were a lot of white people arrested for them. Um, but the same thing would happen. They just, you know, just you know, did you kill um, all these? Aboriginal people, there's a famous one at Goose Hill in the Kimberleys. And the bloke said, I can't say I did much wrong after killing 80 uh, East Kimberley people. Uh, and because no one would, you wouldn't dob in another mate. You won't, you, that's one of the codes at the frontier. You don't dob in another white person. Um, there was, it was impossible to get um, evidence. So magistrates had nothing to work with and often dismissed them on those grounds. What about Aboriginal people who were, like you said, assistants? Were they ever tried or sort of, you know, or, um, for sort of participating in these in these massacres or for even killing Aboriginal people? No, no, not not. Oh, I haven't seen one example of it because they're associated with the police and the police mm. just, you know, you know, they have no record about what they did. Um, and again, it just suited everyone perfectly, mm, mm. apart from Aboriginal people. Of course, of course, yeah. Um, no, it's, it's been very interesting. Um, um, yeah, you know, sort of looking at that as well. Um, and how, you know, where, 
you know, I think I think it is sort of Mile Creek, maybe sort of that case where it is sort of um, Aboriginal people are, you know, um, getting justice and, you know, uh, seven of the 12, I believe it was, uh, were hung for their actions and stuff as well. I know from chatting with... Um, other um, Aboriginal, another Aboriginal person actually who wrote a book uh, on his uh, area uh, near the, in, in the New England area. He said after that sort of there was a bit of a resurgence in sort of the resistance uh, towards um, uh, the colonial forces in the New England area as well, the partialists and stuff, and and the, and like the native police as well. Um, yeah. And and we do see um, and sort of like you mentioned before, like um, you know if. if uh, if one Aboriginal person kills, um, um, you know, a partialist or a sort of or, or, a, or a one white person, it wouldn't necessarily just be you know one for one. It'd be you know like one for ten or sort of you know a high number of Aboriginal people uh, sadly losing their lives um, <clears throat> in this. Well, case yeah, well. I mean, I can I can summarise it. It was basically if you killed cattle, that was you know three Aboriginal people would be killed. If you killed breeding stock, it would be. Uh, you know, 20 killed. But if you killed a white person, um, that would generate what, you know, the punit- what they would call punitive ex- expeditions. And they, the thing about them is they weren't just one day or something. It would be like, um, there's a very famous one um, in 1888 when George Barnett was speared. So, so basically the entire colonist community without, with, you know, a few exceptions would just go on a track for, you know, weeks and sometimes months and just shoot every single person they came across. And this was just, you know, the frontier justice retribution. So you'll see these sort of massacres, you know, God knows how many people. I think they killed, you know, hundreds and hundreds in some of these massacres. But the whole point of them was to say, you know, in no uncertain detail that mess with the white people and this is what's going to happen to you and your family so don't do it again and it, and, and that's and it worked you know that's the punitive expeditions just terrorised Aboriginal people mm. I, I remember speaking uh, when I was speaking with um, uh, Lindley uh, Wallace last week uh, also in the last episode of uh, Frontier War Stories uh, she mentioned you know in Queensland alone you know, I guess the numbers are contested all the time uh, by histor- other historians from their research and I guess by conservative sort of uh, researchers and historians you know the numbers range from a hundred thousand to like 60 to 20,000 um, you know it, um, Aboriginal people died on the frontier uh, in Queensland uh, from you know, my chat with uh, Lindley Wallace. Um, do you know the numbers of Aboriginal people or the, or the numbers of, of people dying in the conflict, in frontier conflict in, in, in Western Australia or, or just in the Kimberleys? Oh, look, uh, I wrote about this in my book. It's very, it's almost impossible to work to get come to a number. Um, you've got to factor in introduced disease as well, which was the main Mm. Um, that's what she said as well like you know it, it was it wasn't just sort of um you know uh straight from the bullet you know it was yeah, yeah you know poisoning it was um disease it was you know dying from starvation like you know uh, like a, a yeah. yeah brought in like a a, a different number i uh, sorry um a broad sort of look at um you know what constituted as sort of somebody uh people dying in a massacre and also the numbers as well, like yeah, you know, yeah. I, I think with uh, with um, Lindell, it was sort of uh, no more than six, or no more. Sorry, six and up was sort of considered a massacre. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah, look, the common the cold when the common common cold was injured, he said, killed thousands. Um, look, I can't I can't even. I mean, police obviously knew they couldn't say I just shot forty Aboriginal people, so they underestimate it. You can see that all through the historical record, but it's going to be in the thousands that were killed by bullet and uh, poisoning. But yeah, disease was by far the major issue, and like you said, um, starvation. Um, and that's where you see all the, you know, the native welfare apparatus was set up because Aboriginal people are dying all over the place. Mm. Um, just sort of in wrapping up in this back end, um, if you could like just give a bit of a summary of sort of uh, what the conflict was, you know, what Aboriginal people were sort of um, uh, partaking in in terms of the resistance and then sort of what it was um, in relation to that, you know, our settlers, our partialists, uh, we were sort of using uh, in that time as well. Um, just sort of a bit of a summary of our conversation. Yeah, no worries. Um, Aboriginal people just, you know, it was a battle between, you know, the Winchester rifle, repeating rifle had just come out, I think, in America, and that came out to Western Australia. So they were using the Winchester. The settlers were using Winchester repeating rifles, and Aboriginal people had spears and melon and, um, you know, they were hugely effective, um, but but no match for a Winchester rifle. Um, so you'll see Aboriginal people, and it's all all through the historical record, all three police records. So the police were absolutely terrified. You know, these quite decent people just, you know, you can see it in uh, the police station occurrence books and these small, they were called out stations like Denham Creek and Fletcher Creek. You know, you can see the writing. The neighbours are coming up tonight. I'm, can you send more help? I'm terrified sort of thing because the police just don't know what to do. There's, you know, one policeman to, you know, a group of 300 you know, Miro and Gadgerong or or Kidja, you know, Aboriginal people trying to get them to get the hell out of their country. Um, so you see this sort of guerrilla warfare thing happening and um, all over, all over the Kimberley. And this, that's where the Dandamara story sort of, sort of fits in the middle of that. There's multiple conflicts um, everywhere in the Kimberley. And, and, you know, often, you know, it's a very contested idea, but the idea of genocide, there's these sort of local genocides happening where, Collins communities would just go and wipe out the entire, you know, family group or language group um, because the conflict got to such a point where they were in fear of their lives. Um, and they used to, you know, some of the settler houses were, you know, completely boarded up just to, you know, saying things like, kept boarded up for the blacks, the blacks are bad here. Um, so you, you'll see this sort of warfare mentality um, all through the historical record. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now, thanks for that, um, Chris. Um, you know, I do want to say thanks for joining uh, me on Frontier War Stories. Um, it's always amazing to hear sort of the difference, um, I guess the, the different contrast in history, but, you know, it's sort of the same anywhere where, you know, when I sort of have these conversations in different parts of the country, the narrative is the same, I guess. Um, the story is similar, but I guess it's just different people, you know, obviously taking part in in, in sort of these conflicts as well. Um, and, they, and, and you know, it is very important to sort of continue these conversations. Uh, you know, I do, you know, thank you for joining uh, me on Frontier War Stories as well. No worries, mate. Um, and just really quickly, uh, if anybody you know wants to sort of uh, keep up to you know uh, understand more about what we chatted about, uh, 
Chris has a book, uh, Every Mother's Son is Guilty, Policing the Kimberleys, uh, the Kimberley Frontier of Western Australia, 1882 to 1905. Recently just published an article uh, in The Guardian Australia uh, titled How Western Australia... How Western Australia's unofficial use of neck chains on Indigenous peoples lasted 80 years. Um, what's that Facebook page that you uh, sent me the other day uh, that we regularly update? Oh, yeah, thanks. I've got a Facebook page that soaks that up with the Australia Day debates. And I've started a Facebook page. It's called uh, Chris Owen Focus West Australia, which is the title of a book about how to deal with the natives. Uh, so that's on Facebook. Awesome. Now, thank you for that. Um, you know, and just for our listeners, if you do enjoy this uh, uh, conversation uh, and you like this podcast, and if you would like to support it, uh, you can donate uh, to the podcast. You can become a patron uh, by going to Frontier War Stories at uh, Podbean, and then in the top right hand corner is uh, the option to become a patron, uh, or you can pay by PayPal as well. Um, these options are, you know, optional. You, you don't have to if you don't want to. If you do, that's all good. It all goes to the podcast as well. Um, if you have been tuning in, I have been chatting uh, with uh, Dr. Chris Owen, uh, and this is episode 16 of Frontier War Stories.